this morning. That, that order of worship was incredible. So um, thank you guys for preparing that and uh, the scripture readings and the songs that we sang. It parallels the, the sermon text this morning really, really great. Um, but this morning we'll be in one of the most wonderful sections of scripture located in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up t- uh, to Matthew 5. Um, and what we have right here at the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount is his own description of the Christian. Um, and that's really the most basic explanation of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, or the first 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5, are, simply put, Christ's description of every Christian. And almost exactly one year ago today, I had the privilege of preaching the first four Beatitudes, and today I have the challenge of picking up where we left off in verse, um, in, in verse 7 and 8 today. So, and the reason why I say that it is a challenge is because there's something very powerful when you have all of these as a set, when you have all of them taken together. They are meant to be taken as a set. They are meant to be taken as a whole. They're not really meant to be split up or isolated from each other. Um, For example, the last time we studied this, I was laying out some general principles for the Beatitudes, and one of them was this. All Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. And what we noted from that principle was that as we study each beatitude, each one necessitates the other. Um, Each one, in a sense, demands the others. One writer put it this way, quote, it is impossible to manifest one of these graces and to conform to the blessing that is pronounced upon it without at the same time inevitably showing the others also, end quote. Um, So hopefully now you see why I say that it is a challenge to pick up one year later where we left off and to begin preaching, um, when we don't have the last four fresh on our minds. So I want to begin this morning by reminding us of what we studied last time. So let's read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 5 together. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So last time we said that those who would be characterized in God's kingdom and those who presently live in God's kingdom must start out by being poor in spirit. And we said that that meant a complete absence of pride, that it meant a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. And really to simplify it down to one word, it is humility. It is humility. It means a consciousness that you are nothing in the presence of God. Being poor in spirit is the recognition that you are destitute of any righteous thing, that before God you stand absolutely stripped and naked and empty. Um, So you enter God's kingdom with a sense of helplessness, Jesus says. You enter God's kingdom with a sense of desperation. And if you want to know blessedness and happiness as you live out your Christian life, you keep that same sense of helplessness and desperation for the rest of your life. And that is followed by the next beatitude, verse 4. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. And we said that that is not mourning in a natural sense, meaning not mourning over the death of someone or something like that. It is a spiritual mourning over sin. 
And as you are poor in spirit and aware of your unworthiness and helplessness before God, you become aware of your sinfulness before him and it causes you to mourn because of it. It is the mourning that David experienced in, 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 um, in Psalm 119 when he said, my eyes shed streams of tears because I do not keep your law. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7, it is a godly grief or a godly mourning that leads you to repentance. And this repentance brings comfort. And thirdly, the person who is poor in spirit and mourning over their sin is inevitably meek. Um, and the meek, person, the meek person is gentle, they are mild, um, they are lowly. It's somebody who's patient, it's somebody who's submissive, that's the root concept, mild, gentle, Um, somebody who's not always trying to defend themselves. Um, The meek person will not always want to have their own back or make sure someone pays for what they did to them. Um, They will be patient and long-suffering, especially when they suffer unjustly. They know they have nothing. They're already broken in in spirit over their sin. They're already mourning and weeping over over the consequences of it. And in humility, the meek person stands before a holy God and they have nothing to commend for themselves. All right? And that leads us to the fourth characteristic of the kingdom in verse six. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this one, of course, should be placed here because in your meekness before God, You realize that the only hope you ever have of knowing righteousness is to seek it at his hand. And so you come to the fourth beatitude and you hunger and you thirst after what you know is not yours on your own. What Jesus is getting at is it's not enough to simply mourn over past sin. We must also hunger for present and future righteousness. And such spiritual hunger is characteristic of all of God's people whose supreme ambition is not material but spiritual. We're not after possessions and praise and reputation like the world. It is a spiritual hunger for righteousness. We, um, we have set ourselves to, as Christ puts it later in his Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, so that is a very high level overview of what we covered last year, almost exactly one year ago today. Um, And as I said, it was necessary to do that because all of these beatitudes relate to one another. If you study them closely, they they all mesh with one another in this beautiful sort of union. So now that we have the first four beatitudes fresh on our minds, let's pick up where we left off and where we'll be for the rest of our time this morning in verse seven. Verse seven, follow along as I read. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil um, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus in verse seven continues his marvelous description of the Christian and says, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I don't know about you, but I'm immediately overwhelmed with what to say about that statement because this idea of mercy runs from one end of scripture to the other. It is, it is a massive reality and that is true of most of these beatitudes, but especially of this idea of mercy. 
And so to begin with, we have to answer the question, what is this mercy? What is this mercy? When Jesus says, happy are the merciful, what does that mean? The Christian, according to our Lord, is not only what we have seen him to be already in verses three through six, but he is also merciful. So we must answer that question. So let me first begin by saying what it is not. Um, Some people would define mercy as being easygoing or free-minded in the sense of not holding up any type of law or consequence or discipline. And, And the world would mostly define it this way. They say, you know, they kind of smile at transgression and, 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 and they essentially say, oh, what does it matter? Let's carry on. You know, show, show a little bit of mercy. Um, but that is obviously not what our Lord means here. So when we interpret this term, we must remember that it is a word that is applied specially and specifically to God himself. Okay? Very important. So that whatever we may decide as to the meaning of merciful, it must also be true of God. And when you look at it from that perspective, this idea of smiling at transgression and smiling at wrongdoing becomes unthinkable, okay? So, so it must be true of God. Whatever we define this as, it must be true of him because God is also just and righteous, okay? So whatever our definition of mercy is, it must include all of that, okay? So how then can we define it? Let me put it very simply and then I'll expand it. A simple definition of mercy is this. It is a sense of pity for someone in a poor condition that results in a desire to relieve the suffering. It is a sense of pity for someone in a poor condition that results in a desire to relieve the suffering. That is the essential meaning of merciful. It is pity plus the action. Um, So the Christian has a feeling of pity. His concern about the poor state of men and women leads to an anxiety to relieve it. Um, Even when the person doesn't necessarily deserve it. And there are many ways in which I can illustrate that, but first let me give some examples of God being merciful because as I said, our interpretation of this term must be true, also be true of God himself. So many examples here, so many examples. So there are so many, I figured we might as well start in Genesis. Okay, we're all familiar with it. We're studying in Sunday school, so you should follow along well. All right, in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, they were receiving rightful judgment by God, and he says, because you have done this, you will surely die. And of course, they did eventually die, but God is merciful to them because instead of dropping them dead immediately, we read in Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the first instance of sacrifice in the Bible. And listen, people, you don't, get, you don't get garments of skins from nothing. You get it from an animal dying. God here looks upon Adam and Eve's terrible and shameful condition, naked and miserable and deserving nothing but instant death. What does he do? He kills an animal as a sacrificial substitute to die in their place. It's merciful. And he grants them a better condition. In Genesis chapter 6, humanity has become so corrupt, so out of control with sinfulness and wickedness, that it says in chapter 6 verse 5, 
But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. So here again, God looks over his his creation and it is so utterly sinful that they deserve judgment and it grieves him to his heart. And he sends a worldwide flood and great judgment on the earth. But what does he do? He mercifully sends Noah and his family the provision of an ark to ride out the waters of judgment. And in Genesis 18, God is determined to wipe out Sodom for its great wickedness. And Abraham, having an acute awareness of both God's just and merciful nature, intercedes with God on behalf of the righteous in the city and reduces the judgment from 50 to 10. In Genesis 19, God is going to wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah due to their utter rejection of God and heinous sinfulness. But do you remember the man Lot? He was a very fearful and anxious man, probably from living in a city such as Sodom. But God saw him in this terrible condition and he pitied him. And in Genesis 19, 17, it says, this is the angels, so the men, so the angels seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So God was merciful to Lot in seeing him in this bad condition, in this bad state, and he pitied him, and he mercifully saved him from the judgment and the destruction of the city, and he puts him in another city. All right? That's mercy. In all of these examples, that's just in Genesis. We could keep going. In all of these examples, God sees someone in a poor condition, and he pities them in some way, and that pity results in action to grant the person a better condition. And by the way, they are almost always in a poor condition due to their own sinfulness. It's almost always their own fault. Um, But nevertheless, that is the biblical pattern of mercy in the Bible, okay? So we could continue on and on, but time will not allow it. So let me go to the most supreme example of all. The perfect and central example of being merciful and showing mercy is the sending by God of his only son into the world to live a perfect life and die. Why? Because there was mercy with him. He saw our pitiable estate. He saw the suffering and the sin. And in spite of our law breaking, This was the thing that moved him to action. God sent Jesus Christ to come and deal with our poor condition, okay? So that is the supreme example. Paul, in in Ephesians 2, right after explaining that all mankind is dead in trespasses and sins, gives one of the greatest buts in all the Bible. He says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Titus 3, 4 through 5 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, heard through the grapevine or whatever it was that he was um, going to, that the Messiah was going to come into the world. Do you know what he attributed it to? 
He says in verse 78 that it was, quote, all because of the tender mercy of our God. And he was right. And so we conclude that the supreme example of showing mercy and being merciful is God himself. In seeing our pitiful condition as the result of sin, um, in seeing our pitiful condition as the result of sin and sending Christ to suffer and die in our place, to bear the wrath of God that we deserved, and thus granting us a better condition. Okay? That is mercy. And I'm hoping that by now that we've studied this idea, this characteristic of God himself, that the meaning as it relates to us is obvious. The point is this, since God himself is a merciful and compassionate God, those in his kingdom are to be merciful, not vengeful. They're to be compassionate to the destitute, not indifferent, not apathetic. They're to be forgiving others quickly, not holding grudges or lording an offense over someone's head. We're to be merciful. So let me give you an example of this. In the, in the New Testament. Perhaps from the Bible, there is no better example of this idea than the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. We read it this morning, um, but if you remember the story, there is this poor man, and he's been beaten, and he's, been, he's in the hands of robbers, and he's been beaten, and he's been maimed, and he's lying on the side of the road, and he's helpless. And uh, if you remember, the super religious folks, the priest, the Levite, they're really religious. They've got it all down on the outside, right? They passed him by. They just walked past him. They, they, they may have felt a sense of pity, but they did nothing about it. But the good Samaritan, if you remember, was different. Here is a man who was merciful. So not only did he have pity for the man in his condition, but he goes over and he cares for him. In his mercy, he bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on them. In his mercy, he sat the man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, the text says. And then he paid out of his own pocket for the man to stay in an inn and said, look, if you need any more money, just let me know and I'll pay you the rest. That is being merciful. So being merciful does not only mean feeling pity, it means a great desire, indeed an endeavor, to do something to relieve the situation. Um, And as I said, there is no greater example than God himself in sending his son into the world to save destitute, helpless, pitiful sinners. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate picture of both the justice and the mercy of God. So there's a following statement in this beatitude that has been misunderstood and misapplied perhaps more than any other beatitude. Um, It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And there are people who interpret it like this. They say, if I am merciful towards others, others will be merciful towards me. And they kind of interpret it like karma. You know, if I'll be good to everybody, everybody will be good to me. And let me tell you, that is the farthest thing from the truth. That is not what Jesus is saying. And one commentator I was reading pointed out that Jesus Christ was the most merciful man who ever lived What did the world do to him? They spit in his face. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him and they laughed laughed at him as they hung him on a cross, killed him. So this is not Jesus teaching karma. This is not a human platitude. Um, Others say it means this. 
if I am merciful to others, God will be merciful to me. And now I think we're getting closer at the right idea of this, but I think that that's not clear because essentially that is saying God's forgiveness towards us is dependent upon us forgiving others. And it makes it to be conditional and it puts it on us. And these same people that think this also cite the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, if you remember it. The cruel servant was forgiven all his insurmountable debt by his master. And then that same cruel servant who was just forgiven everything by his master leaves and demanded payment from somebody under himself who owed him a comparatively trivial debt. And the Lord says at the end of the parable, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. And they say, isn't that clearly teaching that I am forgiven by God only as I forgive others? And again, I tell you, no, that is not what this means. So let me give you two reasons why I believe that is not the case. Number one, if you and I were judged strictly on those terms, I am certain that not one of us would be a Christian or be forgiven, and not one of us would ever see heaven. If the passage is to be interpreted in that strictly legal manner, forgiveness is impossible. We are condemning ourselves if we think so. Secondly, if that is the interpretation of this beatitude, we must cancel the whole doctrine of salvation by grace through faith from the New Testament. And we know we're not gonna do that. So when we apply this statement, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, the explanation is simple and in line with the rest of the New Testament's teaching. Our Lord is really saying that I am only truly forgiven when I am truly repentant. To, mean tru- to be truly repentant means that I realize I deserve nothing except punishment and that I am forgiven is to be attributed entirely to the love of God and to his mercy and his grace and to nothing else at all. So let me be, uh, go a little further and maybe it'll be more clear. If I am truly repentant and realize my position before God and realize that I am only forgiven in that way, then of necessity, I shall forgive those who trespass against me and show them mercy. Remember, Jesus is describing the Christian who, by the grace of God, has already gone through the first four Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning over their sin, meek before a holy God, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. So does it not inevitably follow that, if I have seen and experienced all of that, that my attitude towards everybody must be completely and entirely changed? If, if all of that is true of me, I no longer see people as I used to see them. I see them now with the Christian eye. I see them as prisoners and slaves of sin. I have come to see all people as being governed by the God of this world, somewhere where I once was, yet for the mercy of God. So my whole attitude towards the world has now changed because I, as someone who is in the kingdom of God and who has experienced mercy, must be merciful with respect to others. Um, so that is what Jesus means here. What kind of inconsistency is it when we, as people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, are consistently unmerciful to the people we come in contact with? And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's one that this beatitude forces us to consider. So if I am not merciful, there is only one explanation. I have never understood the mercy of God. I am outside of Christ, and I am yet in my sin. So, how can you be merciful? 
so many practical ways. By giving a poor man money, a hungry man food, a naked man clothes, a man without a bed, a bed. Mercy never flaunts somebody's weakness. It never makes something of somebody's failure. It never recites a sin. Merciful people will change a grudge into forgiveness. Mercy never holds a grudge. It, is never, it never retaliates. Mercy doesn't retaliate. It is never vengeful. Um, to give you an example of this, imagine you suddenly find yourself in the position of having someone in your power who has like transgressed against you. They have wronged you. And now, all of a sudden, they are in your power. They're in your hands. Now, the way to know if you are merciful or not is to consider how you feel towards this, this person in that moment. Are you, are you going to say, well now, I am going to exert my rights. I am going to be legal. I'm gonna show them. That is the very antithesis of being merciful. This person is in your power. Is there a vindictive spirit? Or is there a spirit of pity and sorrow? A spirit, if you like, of kindness towards your enemies? A spirit of forgiveness? And when our Lord talks about it here, it is not a weak sympathy which somebody feels but never does anything to help. It is not that false mercy which only acts out to help in order to be seen by others. It is not the silent, passive pity which could be genuine but never seems to be able to help in a tangible way. It is not any of those things. It is genuine pity for the person in a poor condition which responds in compassionate action with a pure, unselfish motive to relieve the pain. It's mercy. It's the mercy we receive by God in Christ. And Jesus says here that those who are characterized in his kingdom, those who have experienced the rebirth, those who know the the new nature, the new self, are to show mercy to others because they have received so much mercy from God. So, our Lord says, happy or blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's much more that we could say about this verse, but for time's sake, let's move on to the next beatitude. Okay, so it's in verse eight. Um, look down at your Bibles in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I tell you, there are some things that you feel like you can sufficiently communicate and then there are statements like this, Matthew 5, 8. Um, this statement is all-encompassing. It is so rich that I, I studied this statement for de- weeks, and, and I still don't feel like I can sufficiently get it out there. Okay, but I'm going to try my best. And, um, and it's why we won't start these beat- finish all of these Beatitudes today. This is undoubtedly one of the greatest statements in all the Bible. Um, this statement gets to the very essence of Christianity, indeed, the very heart of it. And it's one of those far-reaching things that stretches over everything that's revealed in Scripture. So so in order to even somewhat unpack this statement, I'm going to start by asking a series of questions. First, let's define our terms. What is meant by um, by this word heart? When the Bible talks about the word heart, It basically means the center of one's being 
and personality. Um, It does not primarily refer to the emotions, although that is included, but it refers to the center of one's being and personality. Um, It's usually concerned with the mind and with the attitudes. Um, it, it, It includes the affections, it includes the will, it includes the emotions, but I think it is primarily starting with the mind. It is the total man, as one writer put it. It is it is, it is as deep as that. It is the center of one's being and the source of their every activity. Um, and it's what makes up the inside of someone. It's the internal thought processes that make up who I am and who you are. Um, it's internal. So let's ask a second question. Why is there this emphasis on the heart in this verse? Why did Jesus include this one in his list? So in order to answer that question, I've got to shed a little bit of light on the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I would start by doing this. I'm reminding you that the Pharisees and scribes were, at the time of Christ's earthly ministry, the predominant religious influencers. And at this time in Israel's history, this group called the Pharisees had created their own legalistic religious system that was in fact contrary to the law of God and extremely oppressive to the people. Um, They had misinterpreted the law of Moses. They had, because of an inability to keep the law of Moses themselves, invented new laws that they could keep so that they could pacify their conscience by keeping their traditions if they couldn't keep God's laws. And so out of their misinterpretation of the Mosaic law, they had formed a relentless and imposing rigid system of legalistic duty on the people, okay? That is what it was like at the time of this sermon. And so let me give you some examples of this. Everyone turn to Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven in your Bibles. Um, Let me show you what they were doing. Mark chapter seven. And we'll start in verse one. One book to the right of Matthew. Matthew, Mark. Okay, Mark 7, verse one. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Um, And then we get this little clarification in parentheses. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when, all, when, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Um, so do you see the focus on external defilement there? Um, they were so concerned with the people's hands being defiled and unwashed and dirty And you see, this had nothing to do with the actual law of God um, because the law of Moses contained no commandment about washing one's hands before eating except for priests who were required to wash before eating holy offerings, but that is obviously not the case here. This external focus was based on nothing more than their tradition, than the Jews' tradition. Verse five, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? There's that external again. And he said to them, this is Jesus, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So look down a little bit further in this chapter, and we get another glimpse into this external superficial conduct that they were teaching all the people. Verse 14, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Here it is, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covet, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says, look here Pharisees, your problem is not what's on the outside of you, it's what's on the inside of you. He says your defilement is not because you're touching certain things or eating certain foods, it's because your own heart is wicked. Jesus was after what God was after from the very beginning, inward purity of the heart. And you see, the Pharisees were really into external religion, really into it. They assumed they're good and their environment is bad, and so they've got to make sure they mitigate the impact of a polluting environment. What Jesus flips that around and says, the problem is not what's outside of you, the problem is what is inside of you. You are vile and you are evil and you corrupt the environment around you, right? And he emphasizes that the heart is the seat of all of our problems. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, comments on this text and says, quote, the tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment and that to change the man, you have to change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. It was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong, so to put man in a perfect environment, you cannot solve his problem, end quote. Um, I like that. Man's problem is not his environment, it is his own sinful heart. Take any problem in life, anything that leads to wretchedness, Find out its cause, and you will always find that it comes from the heart somewhere, from some unworthy desire in somebody, some unworthy desire in an individual, in a family, in a group, or in a community, or in a nation. Every time. And this is what scripture has taught us from the very beginning. Go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, and ever since the fall of Adam, humanity has had this problem. And the wickedness was so bad in Noah's day that God says in chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. So the Lord looks upon his fallen creation and he observes the wickedness and all the problems and all the horribleness of life and what does he attribute it to? The intention and thoughts of the heart of man. And by the way, the flood didn't change that. He comes and he does a great flood of judgment and God still says this after the flood in Genesis chapter eight, verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So 
the intent of his heart is still evil, and the flood judgment didn't change that. And maybe you say, yeah, but that was only in the beginning. Moses, when he gave the law, Exodus, Deuteronomy, all this, it became all about the outside, right? All about the ritual, wrong. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, and in many Jews' minds, the most pinnacle book, um, says this in chapter 10, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. So in other words, the ceremonial aspect of circumcision was really just a way of symbolizing the need for inward cleansing of the heart. It was the heart that needed purging. It was the heart. Um, And God told the Jews all of that way back in Deuteronomy after the giving of the law. And you say, okay, well, what about the prophets? What did the prophets have to say about the heart? The prophets all say the same thing. Um, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above, above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? And this is just from the Old Testament, by the way. Um, but later on, if you get to the New Testament, later on in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, Jesus masterfully hits on this exact point when he looks at the crowd and he says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his what? Heart. Jesus says, your problem is not with the external act of adultery. It starts with your unrestrained, lustful heart. And so we conclude then that the supreme problem of humanity is the sinfulness of the human heart. This is the reason for all of our problems. This is the reason why we have no peace in our country and in our communities and in our homes and in our hearts. Um, It is the source of every division, conflict, jealousy, heartache, and pain. In other words, Jesus says what men need is not external cleansing. They do not need additional washings that were only meant to be a picture in the first place. They do not need to be taken out and put in a better environment. They need the reality. They need purity of heart on the inside from sin. Um, And so with that as our background and context, we come back to Matthew chapter five, verse eight. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And with that, he really hit the Pharisees right between the eyes. Um, But let's continue defining our terms. What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does that mean? I think a great concept of this is seen in Psalm 86, 11. David says, Unite my heart to fear your name. So in other words, the psalmist recognized that his heart was divided, and he asked for God to unite it to him. In other words, make it holy to you, God. Make it one, he says. Um, Make it single. Take out the parts of my heart that are turned towards wanting to, to know the world and wanting to know sin and its pleasures, and instead let it be turned solely to God, sincere, with pure motivations, and entirely free from any hypocrisy. Um, And I think that's a decent definition of what it means, but perhaps we can perfectly express it by saying that being pure in heart means to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What does Peter say about him in his epistle? He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
So in other words, he was perfect and he was spotless and he was pure entirely. Um, The writer to the Hebrews describes Jesus' purity this way. For it was fitting for us to have such a great high priest. And here's how he defines him. Holy. Innocent. Undefiled. Separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. And so... In short, purity of heart means a person at the very center of their being has a bent towards God and his worship and glory are the supreme desires of their life. It means to be holy on the inside, undefiled from sin and its pleasures with pure and godly motives. And if you really want to know what it means to be pure in heart, look at Jesus. He was the purest man who ever lived. He was God in the flesh. Um, and now, some people struggle with, with this statement because they say, is Jesus um, calling for absolute purity? Is he calling for absolute perfection? Is he saying that in order to see God, you must be 100% pure? In other words, what is the standard? What is the standard for the kingdom? Um, well, look a little bit further down in chapter 5. And it says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You say, what is this? Perfection? How is this possible? Now follow me here. This begs the question, how can our hearts be made pure? How can it be? If Jesus says the people in his kingdom are pure in heart, how can we who are by nature such great sinners ever attain this? Is anybody prepared to say in light of all this that you can make yourself a Christian? Um, I would hope not. No one can ever make their own heart pure. And no one can live a perfectly sinless life. But brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing here and what he does continually throughout the gospel records is to put the standard so high that men and women have no choice but to cast themselves upon the mercy and the grace of God. And the truth is that you and I can't do it. But the good news is that God did it in Christ. Do you see the significance of this gospel message? One writer put it like this, what the gospel proposes to do is to bring us out of the terrible pit and to raise us up to the heavens. So now we come to the ultimate question, how can my heart and your heart be made pure? Number one, no, you can't do it on your own. The pure in heart are only those who have gone through the first four Beatitudes. What were they? I'll remind you. Blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit. You can start by trying to clean your heart on your own, but at the end of your life, your heart will be as black as it was at the very beginning, perhaps blacker. No, it is God alone who can do it, and thank God he has promised to do it. All you and I can do is realize the blackness of their hearts as they are by nature. And as we do that, and as we recognize that, and as we believe that, we can say, when we feel in our our, our sense of inadequacy and in humility before God, cry out with David in his prayer in Psalm 51.1. Do you remember it? Create in me a what? Clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, David felt the weight of his sin and how it affected a holy God, but he also felt an utter inadequacy to deal with it himself. Um, And all he could do was cry out and ask God to do it. God, can you just do this for me? Purify my heart, oh God. 
And this is where it must begin, people. Um, Out of the weightiness of your own sinfulness, recognize that you can't do it on your own and cry out with David for help. So number one, no, you can't do it on your own. What's next? The next step, Acts 15.9. Acts 15.9. Write that down in your Bibles. Acts 15.9. Speaking of new believers, Luke says this, having purified their hearts by faith. Having purified their hearts by faith by faith. It is by faith. Faith in what? I'll tell you. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you want to have a pure heart? You want to have a pure motive? It must begin by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and accepting the sacrifice for sins which he has already done. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, Christ has done what you and I could not do. His perfectly pure life and shedding of blood has the power to, by faith, purify your heart and cleanse you from the inside so that, in the words of Paul in Romans 5, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So by faith, accept God's gracious and merciful offer of salvation, which cleanses and purifies the heart. By faith, you must believe God and be counted righteous by the cleansing of the Spirit of God. And maybe you're a Christian here today, um, and you've already done that but you're struggling in the day-to-day, in the living it out. Um, Maybe you say, I don't feel very pure. I don't feel very close to God. Um, Can I remind you of James 4? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let me remind you that we play an active role in this as well. And if I want God to draw near to me, we must draw near to him. Jones again says, quote, the fact that I know I cannot ultimately purify and cleanse my heart in an absolute sense does not mean that I should walk in the gutters of life waiting for God to cleanse me. I must do everything I can and still know it is not enough and that he must do it finally, end quote. Um, and so, you know, so many Christians just kind of mope around and they know they're not very close to God, and they know that, and they don't like that, but they never do anything about it. And so while it is true that God does the whole work, both of drawing us to himself and of the purifying, we must not be passive. Um, James continues, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The Christian life is not passive, it is active. Paul says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, but then he also says elsewhere, put to death therefore the deeds of the body, and you will live. Um, So, you know, what if I miss the mark? What if I give in to temptation? What if I fall short? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the Christian life. We who by faith have been declared righteous and pure in the sight of God live out our lives in humble obedience to him so that we can over time be transformed more and more into the image and to the likeness of Christ. This is what it means to be pure in heart. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. 
Um, lastly, and very quickly, there is a promise attached to this beatitude that is so glorious. Um, what is the reward if we are pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. People, is there anything more glorious than that? Is there anything more exciting and wondrous as that? When a person purifies their heart by this gospel message I've shared with you this morning, have you ever noticed what happens to that person? All of a sudden, God becomes clear and known to them. And hopefully you can relate to this as well. Um, But what happens is the darkness is now turned to light, and the blindness is now turned to sight. And MacArthur puts it like this, the purifying of the heart cleanses the vision of the soul, end quote. And so all of a sudden, you see God. You see him in nature. You see him in his providence in your life. You see him in circumstances. You see him in the scriptures. Um, And you see him in the events of history. You see him in his gracious dealings with you in your own sanctification process. You see him working in the lives of people around you and like Job, you will even see him in your suffering. You wanna have God alive in your world? Do you want to see God both now and forever? then purify your heart by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, this promise gets even better than all the things that I just described to you. This promise in Matthew 5.8 goes beyond even all of those things. You say, how? 1 John 3.2, we read it on the screen this morning. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John says, when Jesus comes again in full glory, you will see him face to face. You will see him as he is because you will be like him. In Revelation 22, John says, at the very end of history, in the new heavens and in the new earth, no longer will, be there, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. His servants, that's us, who's been purified by the blood of the lamb. Verse four, they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Surely, there is nothing more glorious and exciting and heavenly as this promise attached to this beatitude. If we but grasp this, it would revolutionize our lives. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of glory. Do you believe it? Do you know it as true? Are you preparing for it? Has your heart been purified? If you have, do you realize that a day is coming when you are going to see God face to face? Surely when you realize this, everything else in your life pales in comparison. So this morning we've covered a lot and so I wanna end our time this morning by asking a series of questions centered upon the first two Beatitudes that we studied this morning. Okay, so number one, how can I know that I'm merciful in the way that Jesus means it in Matthew 5, 7? 
Have you experienced the mercy of God? Do you know what the psalmist was going through when he cried out, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered? Have you felt that sense of forgiveness and cleansing and blessing by God that comes with having experienced God's own tender mercy? The second question, do you feel a weightiness and even a sense of pity when you see a person in great need or, or somebody who's in a really tough spot in life? The merciful person does. They are not hardened or disinterested by other people's problems and hardships. Instead, they are affected by them and they feel a weightiness and a pity for them. Further than that, If you do feel a sense of pity for them, do you, by the Spirit of God, reach out and provide tangible help to alleviate the pain? Do you, as Christ did, see people in distress and in poor conditions physically, emotionally, spiritually, doesn't matter what it is, and get up and actually do something for them? Or do you pass them by like the really religious people in Luke 10, the priests, and just say, somebody else will get to it? I'm not really affected by that anyways. It's probably your own fault anyways. Another question. Do you have a really hard time forgiving people when they wrong you? I mean, is it a painful, internal struggle for you to forgive someone? Or is forgiveness for you a pretty straightforward process because you know that they are a sinner just like you and you know what it means to be forgiven yourself, so why should you hold a grudge? The merciful person will forgive others easily and consistently. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4 when he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Final few questions. How can I be sure my heart is pure? Number one, can you identify with the first Beatitudes? Because remember, this is somewhat of a progression in these Beatitudes, and they are meant to be taken as a set. So can you identify with being poor in spirit, with having a sense of lowliness and humility, with mourning over your own sin and of the sin of the world, meekness before a holy God, hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that you know you can't get on your own, and being merciful to others. Can you identify with those things? Because if you can, you can be quite certain your heart has been purified by this gospel. Second question. In your relationship with God and the church, where is your primary focus? And what I mean by that is this. Is it more so geared towards external, ritual, ceremonial aspects, or how others look around you, or how you look to others around you? And let me tell you something. I don't care if you go to church every day of the week. I don't care if you gave $100,000 to the church last year. Kids, I don't care if you won Bible Drill or if you won Awana. Um, It doesn't matter how religious you are on the outside. God wants what's on, on the inside. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says, For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the 
heart. So is your relationship to God primarily focused on internal submission to Christ and his word with pure motives and genuine God-fearing obedience? Where is your focus? Maybe your heart has been cleansed by, the, by faith. Um, but again, you're struggling in the day-to-day. Um, the hymn we sang today, um, it was... Um, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take my heart, take and seal it. I love that lyric. But maybe, you're, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you just can't quite get in the, the habit of purity in your day-to-day life. Um, but if we're honest, that is every believer in this room, I think. And so for those of us who fall into that category, what can we do to pursue pure lives? I like Proverbs 4. It says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. So how can you guard your heart? David answers this question in Psalm 119.9, so clear. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So are you guarding your heart with the shield of faith and with the word of God? Are you in the word of God? Are you drawing near to God by word and by prayer? Do you know this word so well that you are able to combat the devil and his temptations and his deception when being tempted? Paul says to Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So you see, people with pure hearts are dissatisfied with their present sin because it's against the grain of their new nature. Let me say that again. Um, People with pure hearts are dissatisfied with their present sin because it's against the grain of their new nature. They are pursuing righteousness and guarding their hearts from impure passions. Here's another practical tip for purity. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John says the person who hopes in Jesus Christ in his saving work on the cross, in his coming again, purifies himself as he is pure. So are you hoping in Jesus? Is that where you have set your hope and your trust? Are you thinking about him? Um, Are you thinking about what he taught, about how he lived? Are you thinking about these things throughout the week? Are you hoping in him? Or is it really only on Sundays? And so, Look at Christ, and as you set your hope in Jesus, you will inevitably, John says, you will, you will inevitably be taking part in purifying your heart. Um, so this is what it means to be in God's kingdom. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being poor in spirit, being mournful, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, and being pure in heart. So have you experienced this? Can you identify it with these attributes? If not, I pray God would use his word to stir in your heart a longing for Christ and the forgiveness and the cleansing that he offers. Let's pray. God, in so many ways, We read these Beatitudes and we are crushed to the ground. We read them and study them and we fall so short. 
In some ways, the closer we get to manifesting these characteristics, the further away we seem to be. The less and less qualified we feel for your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that these beatitudes would ultimately drive us to the end of ourselves. That we would see it is all of grace and your merciful sending of Christ and his substitutionary once for all sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that we would use the gracious provision of your spirit in our lives as we look to him who knew no sin. That we, as Christ did, would show mercy to others that we come in contact with. That we would not only feel a sense of compassion on them, but that we would do something about it. That we would forgive others just as we have been forgiven by you. And I pray that in all of our dealings in life, we would flow out of a purified and undivided heart. That we could cry out with David in Psalm 57 when he said, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. We may fail on the outside, but may our heart be set towards you. And keep us from being people who only look good on the outside. Guard our hearts from this temptation until we see you as you are face to face in the full glory. May those in this world who know nothing of Christ, nothing of forgiveness, nothing of criminal, nothing of the characteristics seen in these beatitudes, may they see the awfulness of their sin and repent and be purified by faith.